If you have your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 12. We are in second week of an audience-driven sermon series called Hot Topics. Last Sunday, we started uh, by kind of chiseling away at our pre-existing ideologies before we jump into today's topic, which is Christianity and politics. Some of you are like, oh, I forgot that was today. I got to go. I'm just surprised any of you came back after last week, and I told you what we were doing today, so here you are, and I told the guys to make sure we start turning the air conditioning up incrementally, so by the time we're done, it's all hot and sweaty in here, just to hide your awkwardness. All right, um, this, this topic, I'm going to come out from Mark chapter 12, it is in response to a number of questions that can be categorized under one repeated question and its counterpart that was not asked, and here's the questions. How can someone be a Christian and a Democrat? That was the question I got. Some of you are asking that question. So I'm going to answer that question genuinely, but I also want to submit to you and answer the question, how can someone be a Christian and a Republican? Wait, what? Because uh, both of those are valid questions, and we're going to get an answer that should really upset the apple cart of your preconceived notions about politics. Now, I know some of you are like, I don't talk about politics. We don't talk about two things, politics and Bruno. That's it. That's all we don't talk about. But it's important that we do, and we're going to do that this morning. Um, and I want to do that from Mark chapter 12, because Jesus was actually put in a position where he was forced to answer a binary question pretty much just like this one. And we're going to let his answer inform our politics um, because we are seeking to have a Jesus-centered worldview, not an ideology from left or right that puts a Christian label on it. That's what we talked about last week. So, before we get into Mark chapter 12, I want to just acknowledge the reality that we are existing in an era where there is extreme polarization around politics and especially around party politics. Now, this has always been the case in American history. We've always had very different thinking people with different priorities who have been seeking to have peaceful conflict and come to some compromise for the good of the citizens of the United States of America. That's always been the case from the beginning to present. But in these last three or four decades, the influence of legacy media, television, newspapers, and then social media has increased the fervor and the intolerance uh, and really created a hot environment, a hostile environment between those on the left and the right uh, by, by focusing on the extremes of both of those two things and then just hurling insults across the aisle. And so that's what's out there to be seen. And if you fall into that, you will find yourself polarized to one side or the other. And you, with like many Americans, the majority of Americans, um, you will find yourself with these perceptions because of that influence. This is a, a Pew Research poll that shows uh, that majorities in both parties view members of the other party as, listen, immoral, dishonest, close-minded, and lazy. So this is the perception. And this is from left to right and right to left. And so the perception of people who don't think like you is that they are ill-motivated or stupid. And so if that is informing the question, then we're not going to come to a right answer. And so we need to have some charity towards one another as we consider this. Now, I'm going to give you my opinion. Um, this, is, this is not the Bible. This is not a prophetic 
proclamation. This is not from scripture. I'm giving you my opinion. I believe that we have a Democrat party that with the use of legacy media tells people what they want and then forces them to take it. That's what it feels like to me. That's my, that's my opinion of the Democrat party. It's just here's what matters, here's what's important, this is if, what good people want, and then we're going to start doing stuff to make everybody have it. And there's no res- even if there's any resistance, you don't get to be heard. But we also have a Republican party that does nothing, in my opinion, but speak against and rail against Democrats and then does nothing. That's what I've observed. Not just my perception. Maybe, you're, maybe you know some candidates, know some things, and know something I don't know. But that's been the general perception that I have. And I also have received this question. Should the United States consider adding a third party? And here's my answer. We need a second party. Because right now, what we have is a uniparty playing ping pong as a sleight of hand and doing whatever they want to preserve power and to guard their own corruption. In my opinion. Now, this is me in my opinion. I'm just saying. This is not the Bible yet. We're going to get to that. So work needs to be done. Can I get an amen? We're going to talk about what kind of work needs to get done, but something needs to get done. Now, one of our values at Christ Church uh, is that we are a becoming community. Do you see we put it in the mission? Disciples. We exist to be and become disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus. Now, there's a reason we use a sentence that's that poorly constructed. And it's because of that word, become. When you start to follow Jesus, you are following him as a learner, which means you're learning from him as your teacher, which means he knows things you do not. And when you disagree, guess who's wrong? So we're all learning. And so we're trying to be disciples. And we are trying to make disciples. We're trying to reach people who are in the world without hope because they do not have Jesus and bring them a life-giving message and teach them the things that we've learned. So we're disciple makers. But it's important because this process is slow and arduous that we become a community that allows people to become disciples. And this means people need to be able to come into our community and feel a sense of belonging before their behavior changes, before they believe all the things that you believe. And in order to keep this environment intact, we have to have a spirit of charity and of patient endurance towards people who think differently than us. And so this is a non-negotiable. We also have this value. This is the sixth of our six uh, kind of guiding principles. It's that love and truth are equal, essential, and inseparable. As soon as you err to one side or the other, you've lost the whole thing. If you decide to hold on to what you perceive as truth to the extent that you mistreat other people, you've lost the truth. Because truth and love are equal, essential, and inseparable. If you decide that it's the loving thing to do is to accept everyone without ever challenging with the things they think that are lies, well, you've lost love. Because it's not loving to leave people in a lie that ends in their own destruction. Do you understand how this works? And so for us, love and truth are equal. They're both essential. You can't go anywhere, do anything, understand anything without them. And they're inseparable. You can't pull them apart or you lose both. And so that's what we're seeking to do. And so I don't want anything that I say this morning to become an obstacle to people on their journey towards Jesus. And believe it or not, I would imagine in a congregation this size, and I won't have you raise your hands, but I'm guessing the majority of people who are present here are right-leaning, more conservative-type people who may associate with the Republican Party, and a minority of people who are present would be more left-leaning people who associate with the Democratic Party. That's That's what I imagined. But you may be surprised to find that both camps exist and both are filled with genuine people who have faith in Jesus and are trying to move in his direction. 
Now, part of the reason for that, and this is, this is the specific answer to this question before we jump into Mark chapter 12. Here's, here's the honest, genuine, charitable answer to the question, how can someone be a Democrat and a Christian? Because the Democrat Party defines and emphasizes equality and appeals to compassion for the disadvantaged and marginalized. This is why. And those are Christian values. Those are biblical values. Equality and compassion. And if you're a left-leaning person asking the question, how can someone be a Republican and a Christian, and I've listened to people ask both of those questions sincerely and in a mocking way in podcasts this week. It's been very fun. If you're asking that question, here's why. The Republican Party defines and emphasizes freedom and appeals to tradition and to the common good. And all of those things are also biblical principles. And so at the foundation, at the most charitable foundation of these two parties, there are appeals to uh, qualities that are engendered in the person of Jesus. Uh, and so that is why. That's the genuine answer. Now, there's a whole lot going on besides that. Can I get amen? It's not that simple, is it? So, Mark chapter 12, verse 13 and 17. Here's what it says. Now, Jesus at this point has cleansed the temple. He's about to proclaim some woes on the Pharisees. He's heading towards Jerusalem for the cross. He's having these interactions publicly where he's teaching. He's being opposed by the Pharisees. And he's being put into a bind publicly to align with one party or another. So very similar to the questions we're asking this morning. Here's what it says, Mark 12, 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. So the Pharisees are a group of people who are looking for religious autonomy, less governmental intrusion, and they have a moral majority that influences power. Who does that kind of sound like? And the Herodians have aligned with Rome and are using governmental power to influence and protect the rights of the people, and they are supportive of heavy taxation, especially on the rich, for the sake of wealth redistribution and equality. Now, who does that sound like? So these two groups of people come together in opposition to Jesus. See, it takes Jesus to get people to come together. <laughs> but they did it to trap him in his talk. Verse 14. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Does that sound like flattery to you? It should. They're blowing smoke. We just have a genuine question for a genuine teacher. So pure and wise. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Do you see the binary there? So a general question just got specific. You have pick A or B. Pencil in your answer and stick it in the slot. You see what they're doing? So Jesus is now in the horns of a dilemma. Verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? So he goes after their heart. What is it you're after here? And then he says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. 
Now, you've probably heard that passage before, and it's hit you in a way where you found that Jesus was able to confound this dilemma by putting kind of a foot in both worlds and kind of answering with a both and or a neither nor. Right? It's a little confusing there, and you're like, wow, that's pretty brilliant. And the idea there is do the right thing, pay your taxes, but remember there's something bigger going on here, and, and you have to pay attention to God too, and that's more important. And that's kind of like the idea. And that's not untrue. We're going to see how that plays into this. But there's actually something more that's going on here, that if you were alive when this interaction took place, that you would have been acutely aware of, that actually tells us something about the nature of this question and brings us very much into this question about, can you be a Christian? If you're a Christian, which political party should you align with? That's the nature of this question. Let me explain. In in the year 6 AD, this tax, it's called a tribute, not in this translation, but it's called a tribute tax. It's a head tax. It's one denarius, which is not very much money. It's about a day's pay for a common wage earner. So you're talking maybe 35 bucks. And this is an annual tax. And so somebody would have had this coin in their pocket. As Jesus said, somebody show me the coin. And this, in in the year 6 AD, this was imposed by Tiberius Caesar's predecessor as a way of saying to everyone in the Roman Empire, which was far stretching, that you now must pay for the privilege of being a subject of Rome. And a particular Galilean named Judas stood up and said, absolutely not. This is the time that we proclaim the kingdom of God. And so we began to teach about the kingdom of God and how God was going to send a ruler and he was going to vindicate his people Israel and he was going to destroy the Roman emperor. He was looking back to passages from Daniel, which we'll get into in a few minutes. And so he's preaching the kingdom of God. He goes to the temple. He calls out the religious leaders who are allowing Gentiles and Romans to go in where they weren't supposed to be gone into. He cleansed the temple and drove everybody out. And then he told all the Jews in Israel that they should not pay that tribute. And if they did, he would burn down their house. Bold, huh? And so Caesar sent some soldiers and they arrested him and killed him promptly. And that was the end of that. And there's actually a reference to that in Acts chapter 5 when Peter and John are preaching and there's this big ruckus. And Gamaliel, the teacher, says, hey, these revolutionaries have come before. And so if this is of man, it'll die out just like it did with Judas the Galilean. But if it doesn't, then we don't want to be found in the way of God. You guys remember this story? So there's a reference to Judas right there. Now, the reason this matters is because Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom of God. And Jesus has just cleansed the temple. And now the last thing that is being asked of him is, should we pay the tax or not? Which is, which is a question of saying to Jesus, are you a revolutionary? Are you going to overthrow Rome? Which side of this are you on? Are you with the Herodians or are you with the Pharisees? Which of these two parties is the right party to align with? Do you see the dilemma? And you see how similar it is to our situation? Now notice Jesus' answer. He says, somebody give me a coin. Anybody have a quarter in their pocket? Not, not, a, not a generic rhetorical question. Do you have a quarter in your pocket? Whose inscription is on the quarter? Or whose picture? Whose image? It's not a trick question. Are there any 12-year-olds in the audience? <laughs> whose picture is on the, on the quarter? George Washington. Is there an inscription on the coin? What does it say? In God we trust. You guys all knew that, right? So did everyone else. But Jesus says, bring me the coin. And there's two reasons for that. First, he re- the inscription. Here's a denarius. We still have lots of these, by the way. Um, this is 
this is the denarius that Jesus would have looked at. And you know what it says on it? You know what the, we know that it says they answer the question whose image is on it. Caesar's image is on it. But then what is the inscription? Do you know what the inscription is? The in, in Latin, it says Caesar, which means king, son of God. And then pontiff maxim, which is high priest. That's what their coin said. Caesar, king, son of God, and high priest. Those terms sound familiar to any of you? This is the guy who's claiming to be divine by birth and have a right to the throne of the known world. And he has the authority by God to command everyone to pay tribute and homage to him through this one denarius tribute tax. And so Jesus says, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and render to God that which is God's. And so how do we interpret that answer? Well, the, the, re, the way we interpret that answer is with Jesus switched the verbs. They said, should we pay or give, pay tribute to or give? It's an offertory. This is like a worship act. This is by saying, yes, you are the king and here is my, do, I, do we give it or not? Jesus did not use the word give. And it's aptly translated in English, render, because it's a way of saying, you give to Caesar what Caesar deserves. Do you hear how revolutionary that can sound? What does he deserve? Well, he deserves the tax because his face is on the money. It's his money. But does he deserve the title of king, son of God, and high priest? Ooh, what's Jesus doing here? And then he adds to that, and render unto God that which is God's. The question then becomes, what has God's image on it? And the answer is, you do. Genesis chapter 1. And he created them in his image. Male and female, he created them. Jesus is saying, you are part of two worlds. And those two worlds overlap. And you have a role to play in both of them. One of them requires your everything, and the other one requires your appropriate response based on this reality. What? <laughs> and so everyone would have been left going, what does that mean? Do you feel that tension right there? What, what, uh, what do I do with that? Now, here's what, here's what happens here. One commentator put it this way. In his question, Jesus refuses political simplicity. He says, don't try to force me into it. You get to pick from one of two options when neither of them are correct and in ways both of them are good. Do you see this? And so he refuses to be put into this binary. And that's important for us as Christians as well. Uh, about, mm, uh, I can't remember how many years ago it was. Uh, I followed my parents in their party affiliation. And when I registered to vote, I was a Republican. And I changed my, my uh, affiliation to no party affiliation because I didn't want to be a part uh, aligned with or say, yes, this is the party. And so that's where I, I landed. That's not to say that there aren't good things the Republican Party is doing, and nor is it to say that, obviously, I didn't swing over to join the Democrat Party. But this is part of the reason, is there isn't political simplicity. And in fact, for us to engage in a meaningful way means that we have to go beyond just going down a line and going R, 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 or D, 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 and then not filling in all of the judges because you have no idea, and not filling in any of the amendments because they're worded backwards and upside down and sideways. And you're like, I, I don't know. And you text somebody, can you send me a cheat sheet? How are we supposed to vote for this? Ah, wrong answer. And so Jesus refuses political simplicity. 
He also refuses political complacency. Now, I want to challenge. There's a lot of Christians out there who, who want to just totally spiritualize their relationship with God and just back out of the world in which you live. And that Jesus does not let you get away with that. When he says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, he's not just saying, pay the tax. He's saying, respond to the claim on divinity and high priest intercession and, and authority in like kind. You know, the scripture's clear throughout the New Testament, especially, that we ought to have a disposition toward authority that is one of submission. But it also puts parameters around them to say that they are God's servants for to incentivize or reward good and to constrain or punish evil. Do you realize this? Like, that's what governments do. You want to know the essential components of government? Incentivize good, punish evil, and that's it. Do you see this? Now, we have a governmental system that is so top-heavy with bureaucracy that we are being controlled by people we've never even voted for and don't know their names. Do you recognize this? And so, what do Christians do? I'm just waiting for Jesus to come back or the rapture or whatever. Right? And Jesus says no. And then the last thing Jesus rejects is political primacy. And so some of you, it's time to like get off the computer, stop watching the YouTube clips, turn off the podcasts. It's not all a political solution. Doesn't mean there's no political solution or engagement. We've already covered that. But this is not the end game. Jesus says you live in two worlds and don't spend so much time over here worried about Caesar that you're missing the kingdom of God and the purposes of God in your life and all around you. You understand? This is a very complex and powerful answer, but it shouldn't surprise us because Jesus is God. Pretty smart dude. And so here's what I want to do. I want to take this reality and I want to pop some myths. Can we do that? Here's some myths. These are ones that were associated with the questions that were asked, and I want to pop them for you. Number one, the Bible is not political. (laughs) To people who say that, I want to go, have you read the Bible? Uh, and maybe you thought that. The problem is, is a lot of people will be told a thing like that, and then they'll be told some reasons why they should think that without ever actually getting into the sources themselves. Uh, the, Bible, the Bible is exceedingly political. It's not just that it might be political or there's some political parts. It's political from page one to the last verse of Revelation. What does is, what is the creation narrative end with but the placing of mankind in the Garden of Eden, God's representative made in his image, and what are they called to do? exercise dominion. Do you see that? That's political. That's power. That's order. That's law. That's determining that which is good and that which is evil. That's punishing evil and doing what's good. That's taking care of earth's natural resources and creating an environment for human flourishing. Politics. You recognize that. The entire setting of every book of the Bible is a political environment. The, the scriptures give to us tons of variety of different types of politics. You have theocracy, you have monarchy, you have anarchy, that's fun, go read Judges, see how great it is when everyone decides what's good. And so the Bible's not uh, apolitical. The Bible doesn't avoid these things. There's bad ways of taking the Bible and what it describes and then prescribing that on the rest of the world as it is today and saying the Bible has this so we ought to do this too. That's just silly hermeneutics, but the Bible is exceedingly political, and always has been. Let me give you as an example uh, Daniel chapter 2. So the book of Daniel is basically the revelation of the Old Testament. It's apocalyptic literature, and it forecasts the destruction of multiple empires that have not yet existed in the coming of Jesus, the Son of Man, and the beginning of the kingdom of heaven. That's what Daniel is about. 
And in Daniel, Daniel's carried off as an exile. He is brought into the king's court, which means he's made a eunuch. That's a wonderful way to live your life. He is a slave, and he's now been in forced labor, and yet he has the blessing of God on him. And so he's committed to following God as a faithful Israelite, even uh, under, the, under the oppressive rule of King Nebuchadnezzar. And he's just making himself available to God. Now, because of that, he ends up, because of his wisdom from God and the gifts he's given, he ends up in a place of high influence. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2, he has this dream, and this dream is tormenting to him. And so he calls his wise men together, and he says, I want you to interpret this dream for me. And they say, okay, tell us the dream. And he goes, no, if you're so wise, you tell me the dream. And they're like, uh, nobody, nobody can do that. There's not a human being alive that could do that. Okay, kill them all. And this is what tyrants do. You have a bad day and you kill everybody. So we'd like to avoid that. Can I get an amen? And so uh, the henchmen are like, all right, round them up. And so they go to Daniel's house. He's one of the wise men. He has no idea this has even happened. Hey, all right, today's your day. You're dead. What? What did I do? Uh, king's having a bad day, so off with your head. Oh, hold on. What's going on? Help me understand. Oh, the king had a dream. Nobody can tell him the dream. I'll tell him the dream. He doesn't know the dream, but he's trusting God, and he's stepping out in faith. Do you see this? And so he goes before the king, and here's what happens. He says, first off, I can't do this. Only God could do this, but here's your dream. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was fine gold, its chest and arms silver, its middle and thighs bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Do you see the specificity here? This is not like your average afternoon talk show um, necromancer. I'm hearing the letter M. That's my mom! You know, like, this is very, <laughs> this is very specific. Oh, yeah, it is your mom. She's saying something about a boy. Oh, I'm her boy! You know, it's, that's not what's happening here. Very specific. So here's the king going, okay, this guy, this is what I saw, and this guy's getting it. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. The iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, you don't have to know a ton of your Bible to know what's going on here. He goes on to interpret the dream and say, you are the head of gold, and the kingdom that's coming after you is the chest of silver, and the kingdom that's coming after them are the thighs of bronze, and the kingdom that's coming after them are the legs of iron, and at a time when there is instability, something will happen. A stone will wreck that power structure, and guess who that stone is? He's the stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. He's the cornerstone of the church. He is Jesus, and he has come to set up a kingdom, not through exalting himself, but through giving his own life. And his kingdom is growing and taking over the whole earth as we speak. Guess what, brothers and sisters? The Bible has some things to say about politics. It's a kingdom. This is what Jesus came proclaiming. Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. The kingdom of God is near. You need to be in a right place to receive it, and I'm here to deliver it to you. Jesus called himself the Son of Man. This is Daniel's enigmatic figure of one, the Ancient of Days, appearing like a Son of Man. Who is this God-man that's coming? Do you understand the projection that's here? Now think for a second. This happened while King Nebuchadnezzar was oppressing Daniel as an exile. 
But notice that God didn't give the dream to Daniel. He gave it to Nebuchadnezzar. Do you see how political this is? He's using Daniel and his boldness to speak truth and interpret this dream to the king. Now, the king does the wrong thing. He goes, okay, I know how to solve this. I'm going to make that image, but it's all going to be gold. (laughs) And so God makes him crazy for seven years, and then he gives him another vision. It's wonderful. And, in fact, he ends up writing a poem extolling the God of heaven, and it ends up being in a different language than the rest of the whole Bible. It's in Aramaic. It's beautiful. And so you end up getting Nebuchadnezzar in the first person saying, nope, I'm not God. You are. Isn't that awesome? And so this is what God's people are meant to encounter. Sometimes you are going to be uh, casting your ballot or running for elected office, like in our day and age. Sometimes you're going to be found faithful as a eunuch in the household of an oppressive tyrant. But if we are willing to stand up for truth and be God's representative, then we will be engaged in both the world of Caesar and rendering unto him what he deserves and giving our lives for the king and living a foot in both worlds. Do you see that? So to say that the Bible is not political is quite silly. Secondly, myth. Governments cannot legislate morality. I don't know where this came from or who's been saying this. It appeals to this um, 30-something libertarianism that says, listen, I don't want to get involved in your personal life. You do you, I'll do me, and we'll all just get along just fine. The problem is, is that uh, you're the only one that wants to do that. (laughs) In fact, the other person wants to take that flexibility and freedom from you and then use it against you until you have to not only support what it is that you say you don't want to do, but you actually have to do it yourself. That's where this is going. Do you understand? And to think otherwise is naive. And so people who with this mindset of libertarianism will say things like, you know, we can't get in there with our Christian morals and try to get government to legislate morality. Now, there is a fine line between what is a social morality and what is a private morality and how far the government should intrude upon what you do in your own private life. Can I get an amen? So you could do an evil thing and there should not be a law against it is what I'm saying. However, however, all laws legislate morality. That's what laws do. Do you understand this? Just because laws can't change human hearts, which the Bible clearly states that they can't, laws do constrain evil and are useful for the purposes of God in government to incentivize and reward what is good, morality, and to abstain from, protect from, and judge what is evil, morality. Do you understand that? And so to say, to have this idea that Christians shouldn't influence government because governments can't legislate morality is is actually quite silly. Yes, governments exist to legislate morality. We're supposed to be bringing an influence that says, here's why this is right and this is wrong, because God says so. Do Do you realize this? Now, that's wildly unpopular right now. And in fact, our counterparts in the world who are atheistic or non-Christian, they want to act as though you don't, you don't bring your morality to the table, which is another myth that we may have time to get to. Yes, we will. So 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governor's as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. You see the, the defini- God's definition of government right there? For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And that's what we ought to do as co-rulers, as citizens of these United States. Myth number three. Politics is downstream from culture. 
getting this argument a lot, especially from people on the right. The idea is that we got to stop trying to impose our Christian views of morality on the world through laws and lawmaking, and instead we ought to start to influence the culture so that people generally begin to think differently and then they make those laws willingly. Now, it's not untrue that there's an influence in both directions, but to pretend that it's one directional and that culture then influences politics is somewhat naive as well, because culture is also downstream from politics. Do you guys remember prohibition at all? didn't last very long, but this was an instance of culture influencing politics, and then that turned over. But the same is true for good laws that constrain people based on things that all of us agree are best for all of us. And not only just laws that keep us from doing evil things, systems and policies that uh, promote and reward things that are good for everyone. And there's this common misunderstanding that has to do with kind of the role of the government and the role of people. And Jesus addressed this in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember he said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You've heard it said, but I tell you, and he went on to say, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you in the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. You guys remember this? Well, Jesus is quoting the Old Testament law, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. This is the Old Testament way of saying you must have justice. If somebody injures you at the cost of a tooth, then the cost to them is a tooth because that's just. Do you understand? This is where the death penalty came from. If someone takes the life of another person, then their life must be taken. Otherwise, you were saying the value of that person was however many days that person spent in jail or how much money they paid the family. That's not the value of that person. Do you understand justice here? But Jesus is saying is not let's not have justice or let's be more compassionate than God's Old Testament. What he's saying is the state is meant to exact justice, but people are meant to be merciful. And so if somebody breaks your tooth, you can take them to court for the cost of the tooth, but don't punch them in the mouth. Do you understand what Jesus is saying here? He's saying you've taken the state's role of executing justice and turned it into a provocation for you to affect revenge. And that's not right. That's what Jesus is saying. And so, yes, it is possible for you to have a whole set of beliefs about what it looks like for you to live your life in relationship with others and then also say that this is wrong and must therefore be punished because good is good and evil is evil. Does that make sense? See, a lot of people make this argument from the left about the abortion issue. If you are pro-life, then you can't support the death penalty because that's not consistent. Well, no, that's not true at all. You can say human life matters, and so you shouldn't be able to abort a child. But you also can say, if someone is a murderer, then having a law that says that their life must be taken is the same kind of justice based on the value of the person they murdered. Do you understand that? It's not inconsistent. It looks inconsistent. It's because you're wrongly applying justice and mercy. Do you understand this? Barack Obama did this classically when he said that this passage from the Sermon on the Mount is so radic radical that it's doubtful that our defense department would survive its application. Like our military is supposed to go, okay, hit me again. That's not what militaries do. That's not the role of the state. Do you see the confusion there? Because we live in two worlds. Now, this is, means there should be no Christian vigilantes. We don't go exercising judgment as people. This is why we're waiting for the return of the Lord in final judgment. Are you seeing how this fits together? No? Too fast? Too slow? Not enough coffee? <laughs> All right, I'm going to close because we're out of time. But here's the last myth that I'll cover real quickly. Religion is personal and should not be imposed on others in politics. This is the 40 and under left-leaning uh, Christian people that I listen to. This is the thing I hear over and over and over again. 
Who are you to take your personal conviction and try to put that on other people who don't share it? So you keep your religion private, and then we're going to keep our politics amoral. The problem is there is no such thing as an amoral politic. There isn't. And so we are in a discussion over what is good and what is evil. But it's silly to pretend that we can leave our religion behind. Now, there's, this happened in the Enlightenment, and this also happened in 1960 when John F. Kennedy ran against Richard Nixon, and he was the first Catholic to ever be elected president. And there was great concern that if John F. Kennedy, a Catholic, became the president, he would be nothing more than a tool for the Pope, and now the Catholic Church would be in charge of the United States of America. I wasn't around for this. I had to read about it. Some of you were. <laughs> and he gave a speech to a group of Baptist pastors where he basically said, my spirituality is going to have nothing to do with my being the president because that's personal and private for me, and I'm just coming in to serve. And that got him great response from evangelicals, but it's a terrible way to consider what your influence should be in the world. If you're a Christian, you ought to be a Christian teacher, a Christian politician. You ought to be a Christian truck driver. You ought to, whatever it is that you're doing, you should bring your relationship with God, your belief about the world, and your morality to bear in that sphere. That's what it looks like to be an influential person. Going to get amen. And so if you're called into elected office, then awesome. Now here, I want to close with this quote. This is from Lee Camp. And this is how I want you to begin to consider the component parts of the Democrat Party, Republican Party, and why you would associate with each, and what are reasons that you might not, and how you might move from one end towards Jesus in whatever way that would look for you. Here's a definition of your politic. A politic is an all-encompassing manner of communal life that grapples with all of the questions the classical art of politics have always asked. How do we live together? How do we deal with offenses, with money, with enemies, and violence? How do we arrange marriage and families? social structures? How is authority mediated, employed, and ordered? How do we rightfully order passions and appetites, and much more besides, but most especially add these, where is human history headed? And what does it mean to be human? What does it look like to live in rightly ordered human community that engenders flourishing, justice, and the peace of God? And I'm here to tell you, that both political parties have answers to these questions, some of which stand diametrically opposed to each other, but so does Jesus. And if you are going to live with a Christian worldview, there will be times that you cannot align yourself with either political party and that you must vote for a person in a role that has to do with the issues that matter the most for that person in that role, regardless of what letter is next to their name or on your voter registration card. Consider for a moment the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is the world that we render unto God. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Where? On earth, as it is in heaven. The Bible is filled with stories of people like Jesus willing to speak truth to power. Moses to Pharaoh, Nathan to King David, Esther to Xerxes, Nehemiah to King Artaxerxes I, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego to Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel to Darius, Amos to King Amaziah. None of them were like Judas the Galilean revolutionaries. And so I come back to my first question. Um, where is this all going? And is it going to end in revolt? I feel like maybe the question is, how would you like your revolution? American or French? Because if things continue to go on this path, that is what's going to happen. 
but that is not a Christian answer. You see, what Jesus said was followed by what Jesus did, and what Jesus did was come into the world as the righteous ruler and the rightful king, and then he died for the sake of his own subjects. And every single one of these people who got into a political system and stood up for what was right, all of them did so at the potential cost of their own life. And that's the revolution that we've been called to be a part of as well. It requires courage and boldness, but not weapons. It requires truth and a dependence upon God. And that's a Jesus politic. Amen. God, we thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you for the brilliance of our teacher, Jesus, and the answer to this question. And I, I hope that today mostly provoked our thinking and sends us in search of your answers to these questions. God, we thank you that you have a purpose and a plan for every single one of us that involves salvation and eternal life, but flows into the redemption of this world and the human flourishing that governments can bring about. And so we commit these concepts and thoughts to your Holy Spirit's work in our hearts. Speak to us and lead us, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen, amen.